We finished chapter 11 last time, and we're actually going to dip back up into chapter 11 for a minute so we can get a run at chapter 12. Talked a lot about faith last time, and we talked about time. The human faculty that allows us to live in time is faith, because what you do is you imagine the past that you want to create, and faith is the thing that allows you to bring that past into existence. As I said before, we live in three and a half dimensions, three in space, where you can go either way, and then time, which you can only move forward and look back, but you cannot look forward and move back. Everything is only in one direction. So the only existence we have is now. Everything that's not now, we're either anticipating in the future or remembering in the past. So what God does is he gives people a mechanism to be able to exist in that regime. And the mechanism he gives us to deal with the future is faith. And once you imagine what it is that you want to have happen as the future goes through the present, faith is the thing that makes that happen. Hope is the thing that helps you set your goals, decide what you want to have happen. In other words, I hope tomorrow the stock market will go up, or I hope tomorrow that my nephew will show up, or I hope tomorrow X, Y, or Z. So hope is a goal setter. Faith is the thing that takes those goals and creates a present that will generate a past that you want to have. So anyway, went through all the list of people who lived scripturally in faith, and the end of the chapter, he says that all of those people who are commended in chapter 11 lived in faith that there was going to be a reformation and a city of God on earth and so forth, but they never saw it. And so then in Hebrews 11, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We read that sort of trippingly by last time, and I said, we're going to have to come back and talk about that a little bit because there's a lot of stuff going on in those two sentences. So all these, which is Abraham and Abel and all of the people who are listed in the Chronicle of Faith, they're commended in Scripture for having walked with God and for having had faith in the promises of God, but they did not receive what was promised. And we talked last time, for example, about Abraham, who was promised land and progeny. And at the end of his life, the only progeny of promise was Isaac. So instead of having nations descended from him at that point, he only had the one son through whom the nations were going to come. Similarly, he was promised land. And the only land he has by the end of his life is a burial plot at the cave of Machpelah for his wife. So he was promised a lot more than what he actually got by the end of his life. So that's sort of thing one. Scripture regards him as a hero of the faith, and certainly he is, or was, but he didn't get the ultimate thing that was promised. So then the writer of Hebrews goes on, did not receive what was promised since 
God had provided something better for us. So what is the something better for us that God has provided that was better than what he provided for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all of the people that show up in the Tanakh? What is that thing that is better? We have seen the coming of the Savior. Now we are also living in a period of faith and hope. They were living in hope of the Messiah's coming. They were living in hope of the sacrifice that eventually will cleanse all sin, the Messiah's sacrifice. They were also living in the hope of the Reformation and the New Jerusalem. So there was a whole bunch of things that they never saw that they were living in hope of. We are also living in hope. We have seen the coming of the Messiah. We have seen that the promises that God made about the Messiah were fulfilled. But we are still living in hope of the reformation of all things and the second coming and the new Jerusalem. So we also are living, if you will, short of the ultimate fulfillment, just like they did. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two is God provided something better for us. And what I would say the better thing is, is we have the historical record that the promises concerning the Messiah were fulfilled as promised. They were living in hope of that. We are living having seen it. But as I said, we are also now living in hope of the eventual restoration and reformation of all things. So then he says, since God provided something better for us, that, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what does that mean? What are they lacking? God has some idea of when the run of the human race in this particular creation is going to be finished. And until that is finished, then the people who have come before are still awaiting the coming in of those who are to come. So it isn't that Abraham personally is incomplete, it's that the community that he's talking about, which is the community of faith, which he has just listed in chapter 11, that community of faith is not yet complete. And it won't be complete until we come in and perhaps our children and perhaps our grandchildren. We, we don't know when it'll be complete, but there's still stuff to do. And certainly there was still stuff to do at the time Hebrews was written, and there's still stuff to do now. So there's still stuff to do before the community of humanity is going to be complete or perfect in God's eyes, and he's going to wrap everything up and say, we're moving on to whatever happens next. So now down to chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Yeshua, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what the writer is saying is, all right, you got the witnesses of all these people in chapter 11 who lived their entire lives in faith. And throughout their entire lives, at the end of those lives, they still had not seen the completion of those things that were promised. Therefore, 
you who are alive now understand that you need to emulate them in faith, and you need also to expect that it is entirely possible that you will run your entire life and you will not see all of the promises either. The example that you've been given by the saints in chapter 11 is perseverance, even though by the end of their physical life they had not seen everything promised, therefore you emulate them and understand that by the end of your physical life you may not see everything promised either. Verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That, of course, is a quote from Proverbs 3. And again, two things. One of the things that we're seeing now in our society is a breakdown of the discipline that is advocated in Scripture. And you have generations of young men and boys who are growing up without having ever been chastised by a father. And they're running off the rails and running amok. I think it was Rush Limbaugh who said it years and years ago. Humanity is unique among creatures in that we're the only ones that don't come born with all the instincts necessary to survive. You watch a kitten, for example, and the kitten will be chasing bugs and jumping on bugs and doing all that kind of stuff, and it just isn't coordinated yet, and it's not big enough yet, and so forth. But basically, it knows the stuff it needs to know. Babies aren't that way. Babies require decades of teaching and nurturing and guidance and so forth in order to become functioning human beings. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, so does humanity. What God is doing with humanity, all of us, is he is chastising us as a father would chastise children. What he'll go on to say is, nobody likes to be disciplined. We really don't. But the thing that it produces is worth the discomfort that you have to undergo during the chastisement. So verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And he's using sons here I will suggest generically, daughters being chastising just as much. So besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now let's back up here. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live. This idea of and live. One of the things that we in this congregation pretty much believe is that the Torah is life, and walking in the Torah is life-giving. So God gave us his teaching and instruction in the Torah with the intention that we should have full 
lives, and we should have successful lives. That's the reason he gave it to us. So the idea then that the Father disciplines us so that we may live goes right along with the passage in Deuteronomy that says that the just shall live by faith. There's a couple of ways you can look at that. One is you can live looking forward and having trust in God and so forth. The other way you can look at it is walking faithfully in Torah brings life. So faith can be used any number of different ways. It can be steadfastness, consistency, if you will, trustworthiness. So one way is you live through faith in God, believing God's promises, but the other way is you live faithfully and you walk in God's ways, and that then brings life. And you can look at that passage either way, and, and if you read a bunch of different translations, you will see both senses of that in various translations. So the idea here is being subject to God's discipline brings life. Pick it up now in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short day, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. The technical term for that is sanctification. So God works with us through the things that happen in the world in order to bring us to a point where we are able to be in his presence and holy. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Very obvious. Those of us who have been disciplined at one time or another in our lives never enjoyed it. It it is not a pleasant process, but it's a necessary process because that's how we learn. By the way, I'm going to take a bunny trail here, my own bunny. I did a sermon on this a couple years ago. There are lots of Christian denominations that have a consuming awareness of sin, and they really get all constipated about it. I've sinned, or you've sinned, or you know, whatever. And that's not scriptural. The way people learn is by trial and error. God gives you instructions. This is the way you do it, just like you give your children instructions. But it takes a certain amount of touching a hot stove before you finally get it through your thick little head that you really don't want to touch a hot stove. All of us go through life sinning and doing things that lead us into places we don't want to be. And when we realize we don't want to be there, we repent and back it out and move on. But the way God designed us, that's how we learn things. Now, those of us who are quick and clever can learn from somebody else's experience. My number two son went to school on my number one son. There was a whole lot of stuff that number two son didn't do because he saw what happened to number one son as a result of doing it. Number three child, even more so. So it isn't necessarily that you personally make every mistake. You don't have to do that. But the fact that you screw up is not particularly surprising or disappointing to God. What is disappointing to him is if you persist in that and you don't learn and you harden your heart and you turn your back on it, that's when you got problems. If you just make a mistake or even an intentional mistake and you realize, no, we don't want to go down that path anymore, and you repent and come back, then it's forgiven. And you've learned from it and you've grown and you've become a better person, one hopes, 
and you move on. There are lots of people that drag guilt around like a slime trail on a slug. That's not healthy. It's not good. You should understand that God understands you're going to sin. He's made provision for it. He built repentance into the universe so that you would be able to repent and move on. And I personally believe, by the way, that the 6,000 years of history that we have is a process of the human race being perfected by God. And I sort of think the end of the day is going to be at the seventh millennium, and that's when Yeshua is going to come back and he's going to take the ones who will not learn, will not be disciplined, and he's going to eliminate those and the rest of us are going to move on. And it isn't going to be the sinless that are going to move on, it is going to be the ones who repent of their sins and turn to God. I am not a fire and brimstone guy because I believe God has built into his universe everything we need to attain the righteousness that he wants us to have. And part of that is trial and error. Just like your two-year-old. You've got to touch a certain number of hot stoves before you finally figure it out that, oh, gee, I don't want to do that anymore. That hurts. Or whatever the reaction is. Verse 12. Therefore, again, therefore is be talking about the chastisement of God that is bringing the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This strive for holiness indicates that you don't necessarily always have it. It's something you have to work for. It's not something you just attain when somebody strikes you with a fairy wand and says, ah, you're holy. It takes work. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though we sought it with tears. In other words, there is a time when repentance is effective, and after that time, it isn't anymore. Ray taught a really good sermon a number of years ago about the virgins and their wicks. The point he made, which I like very much, is nobody else can do your preparation for you. And at some point, there comes a time when the door is closed, and you're on one side or the other. And what he's saying is, you want to be on the right side of the door when it closes, and that requires preparation. And also, Speaking against bitterness, as I have said many times before, and those of you who have been around have heard it, bitterness is a poison that you take hoping it'll kill someone else. It really is destructive, especially since it's communicable. So if you are bitter about stuff and you mouth off in your bitterness, you can drag other people into bitterness, and that's not good. Your bitterness is not good, and their bitterness is not good either. Verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That, of course, is Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses is the guy that spent lots of time face-to-face with God. 
But there is one time when he does tremble with fear in God's presence. It's at the burning bush. When he sees the bush and he comes up to the bush and the voice says, take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground. He bends down, hits the ground, covers his eyes because he was afraid to look upon the Lord. I think that's what that's referring to. When God spoke to Israel from the mountain, they said, stop. We can't hear God's voice or we'll die. Moses, you go up and talk to him and tell us what he's got to say. So verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The first blood that was shed, of course, was Abel's blood, and at least in this, the ultimate blood to be shed then is Yeshua's blood. And we are not in the presence of God in the throne room. I believe that's a New Jerusalem kind of a thing, but the point is you're eligible to be there. So 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So he is harking back to an earlier place where he said that the Torah, which was given by angels, messengers, Moses, was sure, and that those who violated it died on the uh, testimony of two witnesses. And then how much more then will we die if we neglect so great a salvation? So he's making that same argument here. And this is a typical Jewish argument. It's called heavy and light. So what he says is, if this is true, how much more is that true? The idea then is that if the voice from earth was trustworthy and there is no escape if you ignore it, how much more then is there no escape if you reject what God says from heaven? So 26. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And that is a quote from Haggai 2.6. Haggai is talking to the returnees from Babylon. So he says, verse 6, Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Remember when they rebuilt the temple, there was great sadness because the glory of the Lord was not in the rebuilt temple. And what God is promising is at a future time, his glory will be in there once again. And he will shake the whole world, turning it up like a blanket and shaking it so all the stuff funnels to the bottom. And the bottom in that case is his temple. So we're back in Hebrews and now I'm at verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So I take that as a reference to the eventual reformation, when the sky is rolled up like a scroll and the earth is melted down and and recast and so forth. So all of the things that are made, material things, can be shaken. 
There are, however, things that cannot be shaken which are not material. So what he's talking about here is, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And again, he's talking with reference to Sinai, where God descended on top of the mountain in fire. So he led with that, the voice from Sinai, if you will. And what he says is at the end, everything will be reformed and the kingdom that we are part of is one that will pass through that reformation and exist on the far side. So Hebrews chapter 13, let brotherly love continue, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some entertain angels unawares. Numerous instances in the Old Testament, especially the early Old Testament, early books of the Bible, where People were going about their daily work, minding their own business, and somebody shows up and they have a conversation, and at some point in the conversation there's a shift, and they realize that they're talking to an angelic being and not talking to another human being. So that's what he's talking about. It happens all over in the Old Testament. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. In the body I am taking to mean alive. In other words, you are still in your body. So remember people who are being mistreated in their body because you are in the same situation. You could also read it as you are in the body of Messiah and you are to take care of other members of the body. That, I mean, that works too. I don't have a problem either way. But I see it as have sympathy for those who are physically suffering since you have a body also and you understand what physical suffering is. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Did you see that some family in Ohio had a judge take custody of their daughter away because she wants to transgender and they didn't want her to? She's a 17-year-old and her grandparents are all in favor of her finding her sexuality and her parents said, ah, she's 17 years old. She doesn't know how to do that yet. And the court took them away from the parents and gave her to the grandparents so that she could start hormone treatments. So, you know, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, I think. It's sort of starting to apply in spades to us. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And by the way, this does not speak against ambition. You're going through life and you see business opportunities and you want to build things and you've got dreams and so forth. That's not what this is talking about. What it's talking against is envy, covetousness. It's perfectly all right to see a lovely house and say, gee, I'd like to have a house like that someday. I'll build one. And saving your money or working in your business and getting the money together and building a nice house. That's perfectly fine. What isn't fine is saying, wow, that's a nice house. Well, I have a nice house like that. I should have a house like, you know, you get the idea. We're talking against envy here. We're not talking against ambition. Verse 7. 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I hesitate to hold myself up there. Yeshua Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And we're talking about gluttony here, not talking about starving. And this diverse and strange teachings, one of the things that happens in the body of Messiah especially, is you'll get some guy who will come through with a three-day path in a briefcase and has got this wonderful new revelation. And people will just go whoosh. And what winds up happening is we've got, I don't know how many denominations of Christianity we have, quite a few of Judaism too. And it's all, somebody's got a wild hair about something and gee, I can't be in fellowship with you because you don't see just the same way I see about this. And what he's doing is warning about that, this fractiousness that we see all over. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who serve the tent are the Levites. Remember the altar of the Levitical temple or the Mishkan, the sacrifices most of them were given to the priests for food. So if you came in and gave a peace offering, or you came in and gave a thank offering, or you came in and gave a uh, sin offering or whatever, part of that offering was given to the priests for food. We are a priesthood of a different order. Remember, we have three orders of priesthood. The priesthood according to Aaron, the priesthood according to Melchizedek, and then the priesthood of all believers. We're in that third priesthood. And those three priesthoods have a different table of sacrifice, they have a different venue of sacrifice, and they have a different thing that is done with the sacrifices that are offered up. So the Levites get to eat of the sacrifices that are brought into the earthly temple, and they eat the showbread once a week, and so forth. I don't know that there's anything consumed in the heavenly temple, but where we're not authorized to eat the stuff that comes into the Levitical system, that order of priesthood is theoretically not allowed to eat of the things we're allowed to eat of, although Levites can be members of our order too. In other words, they just have to want to join it. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And that again is true. We're talking about a specific class of Sacrifice. We're not talking about all sacrifices. We're only talking about sin offerings that the blood is taken inside the tent. That's a very specific sacrifice. And that one happens on Yom Kippur. Verse 12. So Yeshua also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So here is this creation. In this creation, we have no lasting city. We are, in fact, sojourners. And we are seeking a city that is to come, just as Abraham was seeking a city that is to come. Verse 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So there is your table of sacrifice for our order of priesthood. The order of Melchizedek, there's one member that we know of, Yeshua, 
there's one sacrifice that we know of, his own blood, and that is offered in one venue, which is the heavenly tabernacle. Second order of priesthood is according to the order of Aaron, and there's a whole table of sacrifices listed in Leviticus, and there's a place for sacrifice, which is the tabernacle of the temple, and they have a separate table of sacrifice, which does not conflict with the table of sacrifices for Melchizedek. Then we have a third order of priesthood, which is us, and what it says here is we offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So that is our table of sacrifice. So when you hear your friends in the Sunday church say, we're all priests, understand that they are almost certainly confused about what that means. Because they say the Levitical priesthood's done away with, and Yeshua's our high priest, and, and none of that's correct. There are three orders of priesthood, three different venues, three tables of sacrifice, three members of the Godhead. Things happen in three in the Bible. And what the writer of Hebrews here is telling us what our table of sacrifices. Okay? We offer up the praise of our lips to God. And that's regarded here in Hebrews as a sacrifice. Just like a sheep or a goat or a grain offering or a drink offering would be offered up in the tabernacle. It is an act of worship. It is not an act of testimony. Worship and testimony are two different things. Verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that will be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Yeshua, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Yeshua Messiah, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I will see you if he comes soon. Meet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you.